Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's the resident we head to and it's the resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. The Deputy Prime Minister knows firsthand the misery caused by thugs and their intimidating behaviour. Lurking with menace, exploding in fits of rage, creating a culture of fear and maybe even, I don't know, Throwing things. Does he think more bullies will be brought to justice? I can reassure the House I've never called anyone scum. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. It is Thursday the 30th of March. Thank you for being with us. I'm Callum MacDonald. Welcome to episode 29. Now, in the interest of full openness and transparency, Kirsty and Frankie have just spent the last half an hour being absolutely outrageously riotous. <laughs> off the podcast. <laughs> And they're now currently, I can see them sitting, dancing in their chairs. There's not, well, at this point on the recording, there's not music playing. I realise that as a listener, you're probably hearing music. Is that what you were dancing, we're dancing to, dancing Kirsty? To I don't know. No, no I'm what, just what? dancing to the joy of tunes right. in my head. Feeling the rhythm of life. The rhythm of life. Uh, so welcome to what could be a slightly riotous Whitehall sources. Um, Frankie Leach is here, uh, former advisor to Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Hi, Frankie. Hello. And Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we're all the team off happy, aren't we? I don't know why we're so delirious. I have to say, the sort of inside scoop on the pre-recording chat was Kirsty shoveling a spoonful of garlic into her mouth um, because apparently it's some sort of remedy for a cold or some such nonsense. 
Kirsty, do you want to invite Either us? that or someone's winding me up really well. badly. I don't but... know why you just didn't buy a packet of lamb sit there. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's I just, you know, someone told me that if you slice up garlic, right, so it releases this enzyme and it's very good for curing a cold and I obviously can't afford to have a cold right now. So last night, about half nine, I'm knocking around all the kebab shops in my area going, anyone got a clove of garlic I can pinch? Thank you very much. Did you not go to the supermarket? Yeah, but they've all got it in tubes, haven't oh, I they? And I, I need it to be fresh so I can chop it up and release the enzymes. So, <laughs> on about my 14th kebab shop, I, I hit I hit payday and got three pot. cloves. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kirsty's been spooning garlic into her face, and Frankie's been reciting anecdotes of um, being in Parliament. Once again, you're, you're mooching around Parliament quite a lot at the moment, Frankie. I know, God forbid. It's like I've given um, all the sort of former labour advice. I used to work with a bit of a jump scare, just like popping up. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, uh, we probably can't, we're not allowed to record the stories that Frankie was just telling us from uh, the Strangers Bar. I'm afraid. It's, no, let, let me just clarify. Oh, it sounds like I was participating in naughty behaviour. I was simply observing. Um, Alleged the naughtiness, naughtiness of others. <laughs> naughtiness of others. You were naughtiness behaviour adjacent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, welcome to Whitehall Sources. Uh, this, believe it or not, is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes, behind the door, into how politics works. Uh, please make sure you follow and subscribe. It is lovely to have you there, and we really, really do appreciate it. We're actually close to a couple of um, landmarks when it comes to the number of subscribers that we have. So if a few of you could just press the button, then by this time next week, we'll have hit the jackpot. So yes, please do that. Uh, thank you very much. Right, we need to do some podcast announcements, first of all, because if this is your first week with us the next couple of weeks are actually going to sound a little bit different um frankie and kirsty are both off the podcast frankie do you want to tell us why you're away first yeah kirsty i think it's time we told the truth um essentially kirsty and i have been having an affair for a while now <laughs> and we've decided that we are gonna go away on a lover's running jaunt. away together angelo uh, yeah uh, so far we're planning on uh wigan wigan, for wigan. A couple of days and mm. then we're gonna worm our way to um I don't know, Kirsty, where, where do you fancy? Where should we go? Maybe Scarborough. Grimsby. No. Grimsby. New life in Grimsby. Grimsby. Love a bit of scampi in Grimsby. Uh, no, sorry. Um, <laughs> fantasies aside, I'm actually yeah, I'm going to Italy, which I'm very excited about. Frankie's off, off on a Jerusalem. swanky. Oh, you're off on a swanky holiday. And then off to, is Jerusalem a holiday or a work thing? A little bit of both. Got Fair. some people to see, people to see, people nice. to see, human rights abuses to observe. <laughs> Just the usual. Just usual from Frankie Leach. Well, that's Frankie. So Frankie uh, is off for a couple of weeks. Kirsty, you're also off for the next little while as well. Yes, I'm not going to the Amalfi Coast, which is really sucks. What can I tell you? <laughs> uh, I will be sojourning in a hospital in Wimbledon, having had uh, a mastectomy. So... Um, you know, the, the, the beauties of cancer is it doesn't really give you much choice. I don't really want to do this, but uh, it is what it is. So uh, a week in hospital recovering from that and then gosh knows how many weeks at home uh, wearing some quite extraordinary garments to hold <laughs> myself together uh, post-op. Um, how I'm supposed to sleep with this sort of like basically, you know, head-to-toe kind of compression garments on, I don't gosh. know, but... Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to find out. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'll be doing when 
Frankie swanning it around <laughs> on the mouth he carries. Raise the glass for me, Frankie. I, I, I absolutely will. And we um, want to I, say just all the love and best wishes to you, Kirsty. We will miss you, you horribly. This is episode 29, and this is the first one, that, or the next one, I should say, episode 30, will be the first one that Kirsty misses. And obviously it is for good reason, and we are thinking of you and praying for you and sending all the love in the world. And I know that our listeners are doing exactly the same. Yeah, also, we should definitely shout out. I've been thinking about how to word this, but if you ever wanted an example of, like, the best mum in the world, like, Kirsty Buchanan is the one. I don't want to make you cry, Kirsty, because I know you will. (laughs) But, I mean, what what a firecracker Mm. to have someone in your corner the way that Kirsty Buchanan has been in her son's corner in the past couple of weeks, it would bring, you know, the hardest person to tears. And I just think what an example of someone to come out of Westminster and use like the assets and the strength of a system that actually is used to essentially, I would say, you know, make life hard for young black men to spin that on its head, to use all of the assets and the context and the knowledge that you have whilst going through your own personal trauma it's just incredible. So, you know, you are a superwoman. He's so lucky to have you, and I know he knows that, but also the kind of representation that you're giving for other mothers and other mm. parents who are going through similar things with their children is just incredible. So you should be so proud of yourself. And for the people that are giving you crap for being the best superwoman in the world, not only are they just wrong, but also, and I'm going to use this them, anyone else who disagrees with you because you are doing you are doing yourself and your family and just generally communities up and down the country proud so Mm. lots of love to you here here thank you so much thank you thank you kirsty and thank you for being part of the podcast we are proud of our association with you and our listeners love you queen kirsty queen kirsty (laughs) (laughs) queen of politics queen of tiktok and now sticking it to the system, which we love. Lots to come on this podcast. Uh, We are going to discuss momentum, brackets, not that one. Don't worry. (laughs) Stand easy. (laughs) We're going to discuss the the political concept of momentum, first of all. Then later, we're bringing back the correspondence unit. Now, for those of you who may have just joined us on uh, Whitehall Source, the correspondence unit is where we take your emails, your questions uh, for Kirsty, for Frankie, for our guests, your points, your analysis, and we, we go over them. We read them out. We analyze them we've got a great question this week from ruri who we who by the way challenged me to pronounce um his name correctly first time around so ruri i hope that's right uh we'll do your question a little bit later on in the correspondence how is unit. it spelled it is spelt r-u-a-i-r-i yeah i think that's i think that's right good a seal of approval thank you very much from someone that's, who what, that's what i needed no idea that's what i needed from somebody from manchester thank you <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're all a bit giddy today. Uh, so yes, we'll do Ruru's question later. And let me tell you that if you pop back into this feed on Monday, you'll get a little bonus episode all about the local elections as well. Right, first, let's discuss momentum. And I want to get into this because Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, feels like he's stealing a bit of a march on policy announcements, on progress, on a plan, on a strategy. Um, Kirsty, we've discussed before how he set out his promises, his pledges. Here are the things I'm going to achieve by this certain amount of time. These run things like small boat crossings on NHS waiting times, etc., etc. He is making announcements. It feels like, whatever you think of the policies aside, 
that he's on a bit of a run of of doing things. Do you agree with that perception, first of all? Um, Yeah, I do. Look, I I think it's probably worth us just winding back the clock a bit and reminding ourselves uh, exactly what it was that Rishi Sunak inherited, which is, I think by any measure we can all agree, was probably the worst inheritance of an incoming Prime Minister since Margaret Thatcher in 79. We had markets in turmoil, 70-year high on taxes, soaring record inflation, mass public sector strikes, an NHS on its knees, etc., etc. I could go on, you get the idea. That would be a challenge for anybody. That would be a challenge for anybody. Mm. What I think we've seen, and bear in mind that, you know, when he took over, one of the biggest criticisms of him was that, you know, he didn't do politics, he was a bit naive, he didn't really kind of get things. Well, I don't think you get those criticisms anymore. I think if we're going to give some props here, him and his team have achieved real kind of grip and momentum it's very early days before we all get terribly, terribly excited and say, oh, mm. you know, it's a real race for the general election. We are in the foothills, at least, of a, of a proper fight on our hands for the general election now. Yeah, that's interesting, because the idea of momentum, I suppose, where does it come from? Is it, is it all about making announcements and, I suppose even before that, setting a direction of travel and then just gunning straight for it? Is that how you build a, a feeling of momentum? Well... <clears throat> Just for you, Callum, uh, because this is a special episode, Mm, mm. I have given this a great amount of thought (laughs) and I have come up with a new Kirsty's Rule of Calm. (laughs) Callum, where did you find that? That sounds like a McDonald's toy from 2006. (laughs) I found it on the internet and it was free. (laughs) That could apply to anything. Well, this is now the fanfare for Kirsty's. We've lost Kirsty Buchanan. This yes, is now the gone. fanfare for Kirsty's rules of comms. You asked don't, for a fanfare. It sounds like she's doing like a. I don't even know it. Oh my god! Whoa. I love it. Dude, thank you. That is and the validation in, my, me and my fanfare needed. An entire <laughs> army of chord trumpeters is just what I was hoping for. Thank you. You're uh, welcome. Oh, I've, I'm, I'm laughing so much, I've forgotten what my rule of comms is. OK. It was free, so I'm going to use it. Kirsty Buchanan. <laughs> That's enough now, Ed. Um, right, are you ready for this? Yes. Stabilise, devise... Grip and drive. Okay. Shall I, shall I repeat that? Yes, Stabilise, devise, grip and drive. Mm. You could also apply that to dating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, go on, talk us, th- talk us through it. St- Stabilise, first of all. Right, first of all, so, so there is a, there's, a, there's a basic rule of crisis communications, which is tell it all and tell it quickly, right? So what we had, in essence, if you like, was the first part of that when Rishi Sunak stood on the steps of Downing Street and said, you know, mistakes have been made, I want to run a government of integrity and accountability and transparency. So admitted the state that we're in and set out the, the direction of travel. And then once you get in... 
what you're trying to do, your first immediate role in sort of crisis comms and a crisis situation is to stabilise it as quickly as possible. In this case, it was to send out a message to the markets that, you know, the grown-ups were back in charge and that everything could just calm down and you had a relative period of kind of first do no harmery about the government. Then you need to... So once you've stabilised the ground, if you like, then you need a, a sort of... You need to devise a strategy for how you move forward from there. What we saw in... So that, so that takes us to January, where we saw the five people's priorities. And what's happening between there is tonnes and tonnes and tonnes of polling, of focus groups, of message testing, to make sure that having stabilised the ground and moving forward, that what they're saying is really going to connect with the mm. voters and really connect with, with what the voters want to see and hear, right? So we've stabilised, we've devised a strategy... We then have grip. Mm -hmm. There's no point having a strategy if all of a sudden you keep on getting buffeted by events. So one of the things that's giving the probably the most profound sense of momentum right now is the sense that this government, this Downing Street, is in charge. It is driving the agenda. It is setting the agenda. It has grip. It is not being buffeted by events. It is dictating events. And then you drive that forward. So you're beginning to see this kind of five people's priorities mapped out with a very strong, very powerful media grid. Every day there's a new announcement pushing forward, not just on the people's priorities, but we've seen announcements this week on crime uh, and climate action. And the outcome <laughs> that you are seeking, if you like, from your stabilised device, grip and drive is delivery. Mm. And here is the challenge in which we can talk about this Stabilised device, grip and drive is the bare minimum you need. What you will be judged on ultimately is the outcome of all of that, mm. which is the delivery of what you say and you're showing that you're trying to, to deliver for the public. And ultimately, that is the test by which they will be judged next May. Absolutely brilliant. Political genius at work. Right, Frankie, with all of that in mind, I suppose when it comes to momentum of a government... It is then for the opposition to work out how to, how to puncture, how to get in there and say, look, well, this isn't working, that's not working. First of all, can you see any signs of that from Labour right now? And second of all, how? How can you, do, how can you jump into the, uh, any of these four stages and, and make them lose a grip, frankly? Do I see it from Labour right now? I think at the moment Labour seems to be at war with itself and I'm disappointed that it is because, frankly... I don't think there's ever a time to be at war with your own party, but now is definitely not that time. You've got a very weak and fragile Conservative government at the moment, which is essentially their big comms thing, which up until a week ago they were doing all right with, which is essentially stopping the small boats. They threw red meat, which was like obviously the illegal immigration bill and obviously we've got the continuing thing about Rwanda, but now they've hit a dud, which is this whole thing about putting um, asylum seekers and migrants on these boats from Kirsty's kind of comms perspective, you can really easily apply how that's breaking down because they've overpromised. They can't drive something that's actually not happening, which is essentially that these boats are just an idea. And it was painful to watch Don Raab yesterday on the broadcast round when they were asking, well, where, where are these boats? And he couldn't say. And that's where that comms thing is failing, which is that it's an idea, it's red meat. But unless you've got the thing to back it up and take part in that element of the driving The process, drive and the delivery. Mm. Exactly. It will fall apart. Now, for Labour, it's tricky because they're in a bit of a pickle themselves, which is that at the moment, the Labour Party is in 
I would say rock and hard place from the comms on this, which is that they either have to commit to going harder on immigration than what is essentially, I would consider, quite a far-right Conservative Party in terms of the ideology about how to deal with migration. If you look at, and I will back this up, look at other countries who are kind of what we consider to have far-right governments, countries like Hungary, the language and the processes that they're looking at in terms of how to deal with migrants is very, very similar. When we put this back to the Labour Party, the Labour Party is not a centre-right party, as far as I'm aware, which the Conservatives are. They're a centre-right party, I would say, dabbling in far-right rhetoric. For the Labour Party, in terms of a comms perspective, do they outflank the Conservatives on having a hardline approach to immigration? If so, they have to rewrite their entire political workings. And then you get into the problem, which is that the Labour Party is in a fragile coalition right now, and lots of elements of the party and your members won't agree with that. So how do you communicate to be trying to have a different position from the Conservative Party about immigration whilst just, also acknowledging... Just as a question, is it just on immigration, though? Because I'm wondering if actually the principles of what we're getting at here are more about how an opposition can in invade the feeling of momentum across the board. You but know? that's what I'm saying, right. is that how do you do that okay. when, if you take, and I'm using it as an example, sure. immigration... If you're trying to take away the momentum of the Conservative Party on immigration, when the general rule of thumb here is that people want tougher controls on immigration, I wish they didn't, but that's just the fact. Mm. For the Labour Party, which is a centre-left party, how do you do that without saying, we will do this better, more efficiently, when actually what that is doing is taking on a different frame of politics, one that as a party you're not really signed up to? And then that's a problem, because how do you communicate that to your supporters? You want to appear tougher than the Conservative Party. You're trying to get Conservative voters, but you essentially have to sacrifice a large part of your coalition in order to be able to do that effectively. Now, I don't know how they communicate themselves out of this. Mm. It's very difficult. And the way that someone like Yvette Cooper has chosen to do that is essentially to say, look, what you're promising um, is impossible what we're saying is that we'll do it and we'll be able to do it properly and we'll be more effective. But that, in admission of saying that we would be better in government, is essentially saying we're going to change our whole political outlook on this or at least drag it to a different place. In order to try and outflank the Conservative Party at the moment, if the Labour Party comms machine is slick enough, it will ape the Conservative Party and essentially try and be the Conservative Party but functional, effective. But that's not a functional, effective Labour Party for lots of Labour Party supporters. So they're in a sticky position when it comes to climbing up to the election. And I don't know how long they're going to be able to hold this for because it's starting to break apart. Well, I suppose the thing is, if we, you know, sticking sticking to the framework, which I've noted down on, you know, the rules of comms and in, in maintaining momentum. I don't want to get too bogged down in any one specific example because it's about this feeling, this perception of of momentum and progress and flow. And I suppose that. Is there a point in stabilise, devise, grip, drive where the opposition can slot themselves in? It perhaps is on the grip part, is it, Kirsty? Is it if you if you spot a government that's devised a strategy, has announced the strategy, but isn't got a grip on it, you're trying to buffet them in every every which direction away from that. Yeah, so if we work on the theory that, you know, the Conservative government is now somewhere in between stage three and stage four, yeah. which is between grip and drive. Um, the, the Labour's job here is to undercut uh, the progress or the, or the perception of any progress between, you know, four and five. 
Now, there is quite a lot of space here. I, I entirely agree with Frank. It's, a, it's very difficult in terms of policy for policy. But there is a feeling in this country. And if you're trying to undercut the move between sort of stage four and stage five of, you know, drive and delivery, mm. there is a feeling in this country which, look, if I was a Labour comms advisor, I would urge them to exploit as much as possible, which is that everything is broken and nothing works. Yeah. And actually, whilst, you know, if, you're, if, you've, if you've got a government that's saying these are the things we're going to do because they're the people's priorities, and by the time you get to the election, there's no way that we'll have nailed all of this. It's all about growth will be rising slightly, the NHS figures will be falling, inflation will be heading in the right direction. So it's a... You know, we're heading in the right direction mm-hmm. kind of territory versus the Labour's sort of, you know, vote for change, vote for us. So actually, and there will be some, you know, if we work on the theory, there will be some figures for the Conservative government to say, look, you know, there are signs that the NHS is turning around, et cetera, et cetera. The reality for people on the ground, particularly around cost of living, is it won't feel any better by next year. It won't. The NHS will still be a basket case. The cost of my basket in a shop will still cost an absolute fortune. The cost of filling up my car will cost a fortune. And so actually, where they need to you know, concentrate their firepower is on that. that mm. you know, the, the Britain is broken and isn't working for people. And if you want it to work for people, you need to vote for change. You don't need a whole bunch of policies if you're Labour. If you produce them too early and they're good, the Conservatives will steal them. If you produce them too early and they're bad, they'll get shredded to pieces. Mm. You need to work on this feeling, this feeling that it's you know, it's broken and nothing is working. I was looking at some polling before I came on about these five priorities. And just to run through them quickly, yeah. this was a, I think it was a YouGov poll about how well people thought people were doing, how well people thought the government were doing on these. On reducing inflation, just 11% thought the government were, were doing a good job on that. On economic growth, 18%. On tackling the national debt, 13%. On tackling NHS waiting list, 7%. On small boats, 8%. So there's a huge you know, uh, gap there between you know, your drive and your delivery. And there's a huge challenge for the government to close that gap. Mm. But there's also a huge opportunity for Labour there to exploit that and say, look, they've promised all this stuff and it's not happening and it all feels still like everything is broken, nothing works, vote for change. Yeah. It's really interesting too then. So let's so that's the sort of today application. If we step back, it must feel pretty sweet if you've got that sense of momentum, either on the government side or the opposition side, where you just feel like you've got you're you're in your stride basically and you're making progress and you're achieving things. Frankie, can you think back to any spell of just where you were stealing a march? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, genuinely, I, genuinely, I genuinely mean that. Yes, I can. I can. And it must and feel pretty you. good. Yeah, it must feel pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I mean, I guess Kirsty and I have got a different analysis from each other on this. And that's, I guess, why people listen to the podcast. And I would say the the times when I felt like I've been in a, communica- a communicative momentum, as it were, is being part of grassroots movements. And a really good example of this was 2015, which is I remember... The leadership election was starting. Ed Miliband had lost the election. It was all very terrible. And I remember hearing about this guy, Jeremy Corbyn, and being like, oh, I'm, I'm quite interested in this guy's politics, but this guy doesn't understand the, you know, cat's chance in hell. 
of getting on the leadership ballot. So I kind of resigned myself thinking like probably will back Andy Burnham. And then kind of the groundswell of support that started from that um, was incredible. And watching kind of, I essentially guess, like a grassroots communications project from the ground up, which is essentially that suddenly everyone knew about the socialist campaign group, knew about the inner workings of the Labour left. And you had this kind of coalition of people who would come from all different walks of life, taking part in what I would consider to be like a grassroots communication strategy, which was like getting the word out. And that happens a lot with these kind of Mm. grassroots candidates. And I bet it's happened with the Conservative Party before, which is that people that kind of the inner workings of the party would have never expected come out through essentially word of mouth. And I, it makes me think back to, and Kirstie, this might make you (laughs) sad, um, this one particular instance of 2018. And we were kind of, buoyant with the success of um of 2017 and kind of with this new stronger labor party in the sense of having more mps so more mps to use to block votes or at least vote against things and then obviously you had the whole brexit situation and i remember feeling that we were really feeling like we were on the up because Mm. we started to beat theresa may in the commons with the brexit votes and for me that is really because i wasn't working in lotto during 2017 that was my first feeling of like we are winning Mm. and it was now in hindsight the beginning of the losing as far as i'm concerned but at the time it was kind of like uh it was like hedonistic kind of would buy snacks from the local tesco around the corner the westminster tesco which by the way is the worst place in the world if i end up in hell it will be locked in that tesco can i just say is that the one that is literally the, the size yeah. of an aisle it's a corridor yeah. it's a walk a walk of shame um <laughs> going through that tesco uh so yeah we bought snacks we sat in the boardroom which if you've seen pictures of lotto is that really beautiful room inside the leader of the opposition's office that has a very big long table and I've been through all sorts of things in that room. Um, but this was the funnest, which was having a tiny TV wheeled in and watching Theresa May get beaten on the Brexit deal. And that for me was like, we're going to win this. This is it. This is what it feels like to win. Um, and it's just interesting when you think about what, what a win really is in politics, because it could be a win in that moment. But I've always said that I feel like we would have had a better run in things if we'd have not whipped or at least not disciplined MPs who wanted to vote for that Brexit deal. And yeah. that actually, you know, we could be in a very different political situation now if that deal had gone through and Theresa May had stayed on. Just on that then, so obviously you were both on the opposite ends of that, but I just to try to apply it to the rules of cons, which of course was met with great fanfare at the start of this podcast, was that, a, was that a, an example of where... The Theresa May had lost a lost grip. Is that what we would say there, Kirsty? Would you say that the opposition uh, were getting in at that point? I don't know. Where would you place it? It did make me sad. It makes me wishful because I I don't know what it feels like to have momentum and grip in government. Mm. We, you know, <laughs> at least yeah. you're in government. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the prime minister, you know, set out a vision and agenda, which I I talked about in the Sunday Times piece last week about. Mm tackling burning injustices, really important issues about health inequalities and education inequalities and, you know, racial disparities in this country. And, of course, that all got swept aside and consumed by this this battle, this parliamentary battle to deliver Brexit. And we, we never, you know, we were repeatedly, 
you know, try to, to, to reclaim the narrative, to, to, to own it, to get that grip back. But mm. we were being pulled uh, and undercut in so many directions that it was just almost impossible to own the narrative for any great length of time. I mean, there were, you know, maybe two or three weeks there where we had, you know, you know a good time, a couple of good weeks, and we thought, yeah, yeah, we're back on our feet again. And then something else would come along and, and knock it off. And when you talk about, you know, winning, you know, battles and losing the wars and stuff, you know, it... We repeatedly, we repeatedly warned that, you know, if we couldn't compromise, if we couldn't reach parliamentary consensus, what would happen would be a much harder Brexit. Mm. You know, so it has come to pass, really. So it was frustrating at the time because, you know, we could see how this would all play out if people couldn't reach a compromise deal. Uh, This isn't a big sort of I told you point, but it, it was unbelievably frustrating at the time because we could we could see what was going to happen um and it's unbelievably frustrating now because that kind of polarization of this binary choice that the country was given you know it's it's never healed up again it's worsened we have you know algorithms now that are you know the designs to uh you know to just fuel our various entrenchments in different camps and uh, I just, you know, if there is a big idea or a big way forward to drive us back into a sort of position where we as a country can, you know, compromise and have consensus and, you know, uh, rational debate without resorting to abuse, mm. it, you know, it, after, <laughs> after the week I've had, yeah. uh, you know, it feels like a million miles away for me right now. Yeah. Um and I think all of that started, uh, it didn't start with Brexit, of course it didn't, but it certainly, it was rocket fuel to the polarisation of of public debate um, and the corrosion of respecting public debate really was. And like I say, it was it was deeply frustrating. And, you know, we tried again and again and again to restore grip, but, you know, when your cabinet's leaking against you mm. and the opposition has got its own, you know, games to play and... You're, you're being torn asunder by Remainers and Brexiteers. It just, it was not impossible. There you go. I think that's really interesting insight and and contrast, actually, between where Rishi Sunak and his government are at now, where what you experienced with Theresa May and what Frankie was experiencing just down the street as the opposition when it comes to momentum, how it works, how you get it, and I suppose how you lose it, actually, is what we've what we've just ticked off as well, that, that, that kind of the disintegration of um, of that kind of common purpose is perhaps the, the underlying thing there where, the, as you say, the party then start briefing against you and all of these sorts of things as well. Really interesting. Momentum, which is often referred to in the West Wing as the big mo, by the way, on a presidential campaign. Josh Lyman exclaims in one episode, we've got the big mo. Uh, so there you are. <laughs> Bit of a dissection of momentum for you, brackets, not that one. Don't worry. Right, coming up next, we're going to open the doors to the correspondence units. We're going to answer Ruri's question. Stay with us. Now, far be it from us to advertise political party conferences, but one of the major political parties is heading to Liverpool in 2023 for theirs. Hang on a minute. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, excellent hotels in exceptional locations. Now, I've just been checking and I can actually confirm that The Resident has one of its excellent hotels in the exceptional location of Liverpool. Phil, who stayed there in February, says the location is perfect for shopping, restaurants, pubs and clubs, 
all within two minutes walking, and yet the hotel itself was very quiet. That sounds ideal for politicals for party conference, or if you're on a leisurely visit to Liverpool, for example, stay at The Resident. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. This is Whitehall Sources. Thank you so much for being with us for our 29th episode, which I, for one, am thrilled about. Uh, right, let's open the door then, chat. It's been a while since we did this. Always feel free to send your questions in. If you've got questions that you want answered by Kirsty or Frankie or guests, if you've got anything that you want to offer in by way of analysis or contribution to our conversation, email us anytime and we'll include your message on the next episode of the podcast. I realise there might be a few days wait, but don't worry, we love to hear from you regardless. And when you do, we will then very, very gladly open the door to the correspondence unit and welcome you in. <laughs> it's been a while since we did that. Uh, right, good. So this is from Ruri, uh, who asks a really interesting question. But first, there's a bit of preamble. Dear Callum, Kirsty, and Frankie, I'm enjoying the podcast. It's a novel approach to political journalism, which we're taking as a compliment. Thank you, Ruri. Uh, <laughs> Kirsty's stories are funny and sometimes quite unexpected. Kirsty's anecdote about being head of the weekend comes to mind. <laughs> that job title had a very different meaning in Boris Johnson's government, of course. Um, elsewhere, Ruri says, I have many other sources on top of Whitehall sources. He then lists things which I can only assume are podcasts, but I've never heard of them. Newscast, Westminster Insider, The News Agent. I've no idea what these things are. Anyway, I also listen to your sister podcast, Hollywood Sources. Thank you, Ruri. I wonder if you'll ever do a Belfast Sources or a Cardiff Sources. Well, that's a really good point. Um, watch this space. I think if I do any more podcasts, I'll keel over and die. But I'll, I'll, see, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Uh, anyway, he goes on. Serious question, though. The most recent episode of another podcast, which I'm listening to, has an interview with Fiona Hill, who was Theresa May's Chief of Staff. First, what did or does a Chief of Staff do for the Prime Minister? Secondly, and this is specifically for Kirsty, if your time with Theresa May overlapped with Fiona Hill's, what did you think of her? Um, uh, says Ruri. So first of all, I think, I think both the Prime Minister and... I mean, others can have chiefs of staff as well. Well, look, I, I, I didn't work with Fiona Hill in Number 10. Uh, I am indebted to Fiona Hill for getting me into Number 10. I worked with her on the campaign trail, that glorious campaign that was 2019. <laughs> um, and I have to say that she, you know, I, I, I found her to be, you know, incredibly bright, very funny, very supportive, very good at comms. Um and when I uh, when we finished the campaign, and obviously her and Nick were standing down, I think it was her recommendation that got me into number ten in the first place. So uh, I owe her a debt of gratitude. Um, I worked with Gavin Barwell as chief of staff to Theresa May, and uh, I might be getting the kind of timings of this wrong, but. For anyone that thinks it's kind of a jumped-up title, uh, I mean, Gavin would be in work at five in the morning. He would be there till, you know, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night, mm. most nights. Uh, I have rarely met someone who uh, was more dedicated or hard-working than he. In essence, I'm going to try and shorthand what a chief of staff is. They're kind of the you know, eyes and ears of the Prime Minister when the Prime Minister, you know, can't be everywhere at once. And in essence, because the task at hand was so 
profound to the country and so uh, detailed and all-consuming. Uh, no chief of staff uh, with a with a massive kind of intray, and I'd like to see a prime minister or chief of staff that doesn't uh, can survive without a deputy chief of staff. Mm. Uh, in our case, uh, Jojo Penn. So the the division of labour was roughly that you know Jojo drove the domestic agenda, um, uh, and you know we we managed to get you know quite a few kind of domestic policies out of the door despite Brexit, as they say. <laughs> Um, and obviously, you know, Gavin concentrated on the negotiations and Brexit, mm. both both at Brussels and you know, politically within Parliament. Um, and it's uh, you know, it's the most complicated, complex project management job I think you'll ever find. He managed to do it with uh, unbelievable amounts of you know, grace and. Uh, Calmness. I don't. You know. I've mm. never once in all of that stress and pressure, the uh, the pressure cooker that that Parliament, you know, kind of baked us in. Not once did I ever see him. You know, mm. uh, even get terse with someone. Really? Let alone. You know, it's an, ext- it's an extraordinary uh, example of stress management. Um, and very, very bright. Very, very bright. And he worked incredibly hard. And it is an essential. Uh, it is an essential part of the mm. Downing Street operation. It, again, I do this. I realise I do this at my peril. Um, project management, I think, was a, a good phrase there. In the West Wing, they refer to the 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 president's chief of staff, clearly slightly different, as being effectively co-president because of yeah. the kind of grip that they have on the, the sort of machinery of how things are getting done. Um, and actually, in the U.S. system, they often would highlight the chief of staff as being more powerful and influential than the vice president. Because I don't think that's even non-applicable to UK politics. No. I've what's, your, said, what's your experience in, in the opposition, Frankie? I think it's completely right. I've always said that you know fools in politics want to be the MPs and the prime minister. People with strategy want to be the chief of staff, and I I will back that to the hill in the sense that. You know, to be prime minister, you take so much flack all of the time. You're super visible. You still don't really have centralised decision-making power because you have to run it by the cabinet, you have to run it by your chief of staff, and you have to run it by the various stakeholders that have kind of coalesced around you. For me, the chief of staff holds the final decision. Usually, if the relationship is good, they have the ear Mm. of their principal, the person that they are chief of staff to. They also, I think if they're effective, will, you know, strike the fear of God into everybody else beneath them. They have an extremely huge responsibility to keep the coalition often of chaos for their leader intact and to protect, you know, their prime minister or their president to be able to look like an effective politician. But really, the person with the power in the room there is the chief of staff. Now, obviously, that can go one of two ways, because I think political animals, as people often are, are blinded by power. Mm. And so therefore, if you've got the most powerful position, I would say in politics, which is to be chief of staff to the prime minister and in opposition is to be chief of staff of the opposition. I think as a chief of staff, you know, when you've got all that power you're also then very vulnerable to people who want to use that power and i think you know being a chief of staff particularly in a moment of chaos is quite a lonely place so then you're kind of vulnerable to all sorts of nefarious sources that will come for you and try to manipulate the power that you hold it is the job of any advisor no matter how high up the kind of advisor pecking order you are uh, sometimes to take the heat uh, for your principal 
as it were. But our situation was uh, uh, odd and different in as much as a lot of the heat and concentrated firepower that was uh, heading in our Prime Minister's direction was actually directed at Ollie Robbins, who was the uh, senior civil servant who was advising the Prime Minister on the on the Brexit strategy. And, and, uh, and you may recall uh, that he got uh, a lot of incoming, mm. poor Ollie, just for doing his job. Um, and so actually, you know, Gavin Barwell was... Uh, was, didn't actually become a prime target because everyone was focused in on Ollie. And actually, you know, a lot of Gavin's, you know, job was to, you know, to go out there and defend, defend Ollie, defend the deal. Um, uh, but he didn't, he, he wasn't the sort of number one target in, mm. in, our, in our premiership. There you go, Ruri. That's the role of a chief of staff. Please get in touch anytime with other questions that you may have that we can answer uh, in the correspondence unit. Your email's very welcome. Email us hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch, or you can leave comments on social media and things as well. But if you've got a question or analysis to offer, then it's hello at uh, whitehallsources.com. And then we can uh, very firmly close the door. There it goes. That's the door closed. Uh, uh, right. And uh, Callum, the 1970s called and they want their um, lift music back. Right. I know. We've had the dodgy lift second. music. And then we've also had the dodgy fanfare. Right. No, there was we not... need people to donate to Whitehall Sources so we can get better audio options. I'm sick of this. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us for this episode. Thank you, Kirsty. Thank you, Frankie. And we will see you in a couple of weeks, both of you. Um, all best wishes, of course. Uh, we will be back, as always, next Thursday with a guest lineup. Look at this, we're having to shake things up a little. Who will it be? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, <laughs> join, <laughs> join us next week for Whitehall. I promise we'll be here for Whitehall Sources. Until then, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.